Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 65. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $212 each, and everybody's favorite altcoin, LTB coin, is trading at 0. 0.000095 US dollars each. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty Siberian Husky, Maxwell, by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Thank you so much, longtime listeners, for your generous tips and for your great comments in the comments section on Let's Talk Bitcoin. And new listeners, welcome to the show. On today's show, I have the great privilege of speaking with Ian Ponchev. Ian is a political scientist from Yale whose primary studies include political theory and political psychology. Most recently, Ian has been researching the internal politics of the Bitcoin community. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. He's interested in both the informal power networks that have formed among miners and core developers, as well as the formal power structures like the Bitcoin Foundation. Ian will be self-publishing his research paper at the end of April, something I'm looking forward to. Ian and I had a great conversation, a long conversation about all things having to do with Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Foundation, and the politics of what's going on in the Bitcoin world and in the uh, real world. All right, ladies and gentlemen, today on the show, I am thrilled to welcome Ian Ponchev. Ian is a political scientist from Yale University. Ian, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, sir. Thanks so much for having me, John. I'm excited to speak with you. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, it's not often that I speak with someone in higher education. And of course, there is a certain allure, a certain mythology that surrounds the Ivy League schools. So uh, talking to someone from Yale uh, feels like I'm... uh, already you know, out, outside of my element. <laughs> I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and I drove a bus there. So, <laughs> Well, thanks, thanks for the ego boost. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good school. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it is. So let's see. Let's just start out on the subject that yeah. uh, brings us together today, and that's the Bitcoin Foundation, the debacle over there. What the hell just happened over at the Bitcoin <sighs> Foundation, and what are your thoughts on the foundation in general? Yeah, well, you know, just to catch up, your listeners with the latest events, in case they're not following it too closely, uh, a bomb just detonated in, in the Bitcoin world. So about two weeks ago, at this point, Olivier Janssen, who is a recently elected member to the Bitcoin Foundation board, published uh, a post on the forums of the Bitcoin Foundation. And the title was The Truth About the Bitcoin Foundation. And um, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially what he said was that he was elected on a platform of transparency and accountability. And since he's joined the board, he's really upset and disgusted with the secrecy that he's witnessed. And he feels obligated to disclose the truth about the Bitcoin Foundation to its membership. And so then he goes on to explain that the Bitcoin Foundation is effectively financially insolvent. They've laid off a substantial amount of its staff. And uh, it's very likely going to be dissolved in the near future. So this is obviously really, really intense allegation to throw out there. Um, and what's interesting is that shortly thereafter, Gavin Anderson, the, the 
chief scientist at the Bitcoin Foundation and one of the lead core developers, and Patrick Merck, the executive director, they both obviously responded to uh, Jansen's post, and they didn't explicitly refute or deny what he had to say. I mean, they were trying to spin it mm -hmm. in their own way, but the fact of the matter is, is that they effectively acknowledged that, yeah, there's some real financial problems and the state, the, the future of the Bitcoin Foundation is very much uncertain. Yeah, you know what? Whenever I hear about a foundation that I know for a fact has received uh, lots of donations or lots of money over time, whether it's a nonprofit or what have you, when I hear the word insolvent, I always, yeah. my, my mind always goes to a picture of an overweight guy on the beach, <laughs> sipping a pina colada and kind of chuckling. <laughs> I don't know why I get that picture in my mind. It's a horrible picture, but uh, the word misappropriation of funds mm -hmm. comes to mind and all these things. But we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, yeah. let me ask you first, uh, what country is Olivier from? I think he's from Belgium, but I'm not sure. And I think he might be living in the south of France. I, I don't know too much about his background. Right. And it sounds to me like Olivier is somewhere in between your Bitcoiner who stands behind the foundation no matter what as the ship is sinking. And then on the other side, like a Cody Wilson who says, dismantle this thing immediately. This is ridiculous. So it sounds like Olivier is somewhere in the middle, actually. That's a really interesting observation. I think it's something that I'd like to see the community discuss more openly, but we haven't really had a discussion. We haven't really been vetting uh, or evaluating the motivations of Olivier because, you know, on some level, he's gained a lot of moral credibility through this whole thing. I think a lot of people in the community really appreciate the fact that he's bringing this to light that he's operating in a way that's transparent. But, you know, he's trying to ride that moral credibility um, to gain more influence in the community. And maybe on some level that influence is warranted. But I think we seriously need to ask what his long-term game plan has been and is and mm -hmm. what his motivations are. Because on some level, you could describe this as basically a coup, right? Where he pushes the Bitcoin Foundation, you know, to the brink, right, to the edge of the cliff. Mm -hmm. And then... Behind the scenes, he's working to build up competitive or an alternative organization, you know, and then I just wouldn't want to see a situation where we replace one organization that is intransparent, unaccountable, non-representative with another organization that's also intransparent, unaccountable, non-representative, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, we're not really solving anything. And it seems to be that there's a very real possibility that that might be the outcome here. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I don't, uh, obviously, I don't know Olivier, and I've never spoken with him. You know, he seems to be the kind of guy that really cares. I mean, he ran for a position with the platform of transparency, right? Right. And I believe he ran on the platform of decentralization. But, you know, there is the camp that says, look, if we're going to have some kind of a Bitcoin foundation, don't we have the tech abilities to create something that's decentralized? I mean, I slammed right. the Bitcoin foundation a few times for not being transparent, but also for inexcusable things. Like, for instance, they had problems with the voting. It's like, look, guys, if you really have problems with the voting, you know, I know a kid down the street, Jimmy, who could code, who could <laughs> set up for you in about 15 minutes right. a basic way to tally votes with a paper receipt. I mean, that's not hard to do at all. You know, it's hard for the feds to do because they don't want to do it, right? <laughs> it's hard for our states to do because they don't want to do it. But if you want right. to do that, you know, then you should not have any problems with that, with the actual voting. So I thought that was ridiculous. That really made me mad. And then, yeah. you know, the funds not being there, that really makes me mad. I guess what makes me the most angry is that, just like you said, as far as a dialogue about this, I'm not really hearing people scream, mm -hmm. you know, or as I think they should be. Well, you know, I think one of the problems there is that there isn't an established or a formal place for people to go where they can have constructive or loud and angry conversations. You know, mm -hmm. there isn't a town forum 
where people can gather. So the community is distributed through, you know, different forums, different websites, right? So you have a, one thread of conversations happening on the Bitcoin Foundation forums. Then you have multiple threads happening through Reddit. Then you have other threads happening just, you know, in the comment sections of different uh, articles. And so, you know, there isn't a place for the community to be centrally organized, right? Which I know mm. was on some level kind of ironic, but that's the only way you're going to be able to have an inclusive and comprehensive conversation. Um, and just, you know, it's not there. Um, but, you know, really, again, I think it's really important that people aren't so quick to just assume that um, the leadership that's effectively asserted itself or appointed itself, right? Because remember, I mean, the Bitcoin Foundation, you know, it didn't come about from this democratic constitutional convention process. It's not like the Bitcoin community came together and decided that we need to have some sort of foundation and here's the limits of its responsibilities and this is mm -hmm. how it's going to be structured. I mean, that never happened, right? I mean, really, you had some of the technical priesthood some of the core developers, and then some opportunistic entrepreneurs just step forward and put the crown on their head. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't really challenged, right? And so I think, you know, I think for me on some level, what I'm concerned is right now, the way the community seems to be structured, I don't think it's ever really going to escape this, a situation in which these foundations keep stepping forward and just trying to claim authority. Um, and so I think it's really important that people just question across the board, what are the ultimate motives of individuals that are that are uh, involved with this? I agree. You know, political psychology is something that I don't know much about. I do know a decent amount about psychologists. I was raised by a psychologist, in case anyone wonders why I'm insane. <laughs> but, you know, you said that uh, you just mentioned that these guys, the Bitcoin Foundation, came along unelected and just kind of assumed this position without any opposition. Well, moreover, you know, because I know that you've already thought about this, and I'm sure this is something you're writing about. Moreover, we have the same thing we've seen, you know, for thousands of years. The big ape stands up. He's the biggest ape, and all the other apes bow down to him. So I know so many people, as soon as the Bitcoin Foundation existed, they were bragging, I'm a lifetime member, lifetime member. Yeah. I'm a lifetime member of the Bitcoin Foundation. I remember looking at these people thinking, what does that even mean? Why would you spend money to be a lifetime member? Of What are you getting from this? And it really, to me, it really reminded me of people just jumping on board that which represents power, authority, safety, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, pretty much any sort of political discussion is going to descend into commentary on human nature. Um, and so really, you know, whatever your preconditional assumptions are on just the nature of mankind, that's going to influence the worldview that you adopt. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm thinking about the situation the Bitcoin community finds itself in now, uh, and, it, and it brings to mind, you know, a quote from, um, from James Madison in, in the Federalist Papers, where he said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. Uh, and then he goes on, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Hmm. Olivier, he might be very well-intentioned, he might be very competent, he might be very skilled as a, as a manager, as a leader, but he's not an angel. And so hmm. really, ultimately, you need some sort of structure that can account for the fact that at some point, you're going to have people in a position of authority that either aren't going to be very competent or aren't going to be very uh, you know, morally grounded. Hmm. And if, again, if people just keep asserting themselves, on some level, we want to believe the best in others, 
But we also know that in practice, that assumption tends to disappoint us. What do you think is going to happen next? Well, you know, as a political scientist, this whole situation is just really exciting and fascinating because we're literally witnessing uh, the entire spectrum of political debate as far as the nature of government. You know, here in the United States, when we have political debates, we're debating along a very narrow spectrum of possibility, right? We sort of take the Constitution, we assume that it's in place, and that really frames the scope of what we can even be discussing, right? We don't have anarchists or communists uh, openly running for government in the United States, for example. Right. Um, and then with among the two parties, between the two parties that we actually have, they identify a very narrow set of issues, and their positions really, in many cases, aren't that different from each other, right? So we have a very limited political discussion in the United States, but within the Bitcoin community, naturally, the question that was almost immediately asked after Olivia published this post was, well, what do we do now? And so, mm-hmm. so you, you look through the various forms and the various discussion threads, and it's, it's really interesting as a political scientist to see the entire spectrum of political opportunity being discussed, you know? So I kind of played this game with myself where I pulled out quotations from different people that were commenting on the threads, and I tried to label their uh, political sort of ideology, right? And they might not explicitly describe themselves accordingly, but as far as I understand the different political views, uh, you know, you've got obviously, you know, strict anarchists, strict libertarians, you've got your anarcho-capitalists, but you also have, you know, a more colorful spectrum of of viewpoints, like confused socialists, you know, you have technocrats that really believe that, hey, the core developers are this elite class that they ought to govern. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, there, there's one individual who I would describe as a royalist. Uh, let me see if I can pull up the quote really quick. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had any of those quotes you could share with us and then your analysis of the, uh, obviously you're not analyzing the individual because you don't know the sure. individual. You're analyzing based on what you've studied, what that language is pointing back towards. Yeah, so here, I've got the quotes. Here's one that's really interesting. Okay. So Andreas Atanopoulos posted a comment, a response to a thread that was initiated by Olivier on Reddit. And in response to Andreas, Jimmy Jama wrote, just the right guy with just the right message at just the right moment. This is the definition of Andreas Atanopoulos. Who needs a foundation when one man is single-handedly, articulately, and delicately, when required, spreading the virtues of Bitcoin all over the world to all the right people? And to me, you know, knowing the philosophical foundation of the Bitcoin technology project, you know, its, it's relationship to crypto anarchy and then like the anarchistic relationship to just pure anarchy and libertarianism, the fact that someone would say this just really boggles my mind because really, I mean, he's, he's calling for a sort of pseudo-monarchy, right? Like this is a form of royalistic support. You know, who needs a foundation when one man single-handedly <laughs> and articulately and delicately, you know, all spreading the virtues all over the world to all the right people. I mean, he's literally saying, you are our, our leader. You be the king. Like you take over, you know? I have to say, I think if we were going to elect a king, it would have to be Andreas. But <laughs> I think Andreas would be the first one to say, I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, I would say there shouldn't be a king in the first place, right? But, like, the fact that you've got people that are saying this kind of stuff is just really funny. It is, so, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's um, in the book Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which is a fantastic read by Robert Nozick, one of the greatest uh, political theorists of the 20th century. In his preface, he talks about the fundamental question of political theory, which is essentially why government in the first place? Why not anarchy? Why is government preferable to anarchy? And then, you know, once you answer that question, you can then talk about 
the scope and the limits of government and how it ought to be designed and how it can be legitimated, etc. Mm-hmm. But literally right now in the Bitcoin world, uh, in my research, I refer to immaterial worlds, so these sort of like virtual realms where people are, you know, com- coming together online. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're literally having this debate. And so it's really interesting to see them struggle with, you know, the same kind of uh, issues that the political theorists and the historians have been talking about for thousands of years, right? Yeah. You know, I think, I think a lot of the conversation right now is happening very much in this, this state of ignorance where people aren't really aware of the rich intellectual history that's behind all these questions. But I can assure everyone that you're not the first person to have thought about the nature of government and hmm. what it should you know, what its purpose should be and, and how it should be designed. I mean, this conversation started with Plato uh, and it, you know, preceded him, but we don't have much written record of like the pre-Socratic world or mm-hmm. philosophy rather. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's continued up until, up until today. And, and so it's exciting to see this kind of stuff happening in real time, but it's also frustrating just to see the quality of the, of the political debate that's happening because people will post these one-liners and, you know, in one single whimsical sentence, they'll dismiss democracy or, or some <laughs> other form of government, right? And it's just like, you don't realize that there's, you know, so much history on this specific question that you're just casually dismissing. I think we have a lot of really intelligent people, obviously, in the Bitcoin world with Ethereum and all these other super intelligent people. But some of these people do not have a well-rounded background with a liberal arts education, meaning a lot of these people, they did not take a philosophy class. They maybe did not take an English class. So um, they still spell the word L-O-S-E as L-O-O-S-E. You know, and I see these things all the time that tell me these people are really intelligent, but they don't necessarily have a background in history or in political science or anything like that. And it would be nice, I think what you're saying is it would be nice to step up the academic nature of these conversations and for people to be able to even refer. So if you were involved in the conversation, you can bring some intelligent background in and you can say, look, here's the history of what's going on in this particular instance or what you just said basically reminds me of. And then you could quote something from a book that was, you know, back from the 1500s when some event was going on in Europe, let's say with a king that parallels it, you can say, look, this has already been said, this has already been done, or this has already been tried, which doesn't mean that people shouldn't continue to throw these ideas out there. It also doesn't mean that some of these ideas are not unique. There is a lot of great conversation going on, but I also wish that it could be stepped up a little bit, that we could actually move somewhere with it. How do we do that? How do we get a forum? How do we get a town hall together to have people start having these more academic, meaningful conversations? And at the same time, how do we bring culpability to these people? Why is no one saying, hey, let's really look at the forensic evidence uh, when it comes to the monies that have gone in to the coffers of the Bitcoin Foundation and the money that's no longer there, and let's try to figure out where it went. Yeah, well, a lot of thoughts. Um, you know, just first off, I'd just like to say, uh, I don't mean to suggest that the community is not intelligent or that it's, or that it's ignorant. I mean, there, I certainly agree that there are some wonderfully intelligent uh, people here. Uh, you know, really, my comment was more to suggest that within specifically the, the domain of political theory, uh, we're not seeing very mature debate. Um, and so I think a lot of the community members might have uh, an amazing technical background. They might understand economics well, they understand cryptography, et cetera. But I think political science has been a very important academic discipline that is highly relevant to this project. But for the most part, it hasn't really been included uh, in the discussion. And I think it, it's been happening on both ways. It hasn't, you know, internally within Bitcoin, you really don't have rich political debate, 
but also, you know, academics and scholars uh, and professional political scientists, they haven't really taken a close look at Bitcoin. There's not a lot of interest from the established political science community. And so it's very much, I think it's a very interesting research area, <laughs> but thus far it's been mostly overlooked, right? And I think a lot of political scientists, you know, they don't understand the technology to begin with. So they don't really understand what makes Bitcoin unique or innovative. Um, and so to them, it's just this other virtual currency that's probably going to fail at some point, And that kind of satisfies their curiosity. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that's part of the problem. You know, there's so much literature out there that could really, really guide the discussion. And so to your question of, you know, how can we make this discussion more rich and more meaningful? I have to be honest, I, I don't think I have a good answer there. You know, I do think part of the problem is that we don't have a central location for having sort of like official discussion where, you know, everybody is is kind of organized. And, you know, I think part of the issue here is just that on a philosophical level, you know, the early adopters and the early enthusiasts behind Bitcoin, they have sort of a dogma or a mindset where they're disinclined to see a lot of the problems that Bitcoin is facing as political problems, right? Mm, yeah. um, you know, if you, if you read Satoshi's early emails and, and posts and whatnot, you know, he'll explain that, you know, part of the reason why we have a fixed supply of currency that's deflationary is because we don't want to empower an individual, a person, with the decision-making authority to manipulate the currency, right? So, you know, for Satoshi, uh, this whole project was an effort to design around the human problem, right? To use technology so that we can basically circumvent people as decision-making points. Right. But functionally, that's just not how it works because, you know, so many technical questions about the technology itself, uh, you know, most of them are non-controversial, right? They're patches, they're bug fixes, they're optimizations, they get deployed, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, anytime we're talking about a new feature or a dramatic change to a feature design, um, it, there's always going to be some segment of the user base that's going to be advantaged over the other, right? Mm -hmm. And that itself is, requires, it demands a political assessment, you know? What are the ultimate objectives of this project? How can we best deliver upon that? And so without having a framework for evaluating these decisions and for making these decisions, we don't have really an inclusive debate for the community. Right. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, the Bitcoin core developers, they'll make decisions unilaterally, which again, you know, in many cases, is probably the right call because you and I don't need to be in a discussion about some, you know, architectural optimization, right? right. But if we're talking about, you know, how to improve anonymity on the root level, right? Or, you know, how should we structure micropayments, right? Like, do we need to have, you know, more simultaneous transactions, you know, things of that sort, there should be some design direction, some product development direction from the broader community. Otherwise, these elites that have already kind of a, asserted themselves within the network of decision making, and, and the, this is sort of the informal power structure that I've identified, mm -hmm. um, they'll just continue to make these decisions on their own. They'll exclude people like you and me from the debate. And, you know, Bitcoin will, over time, deviate away from, you know, the, the, the general will, which is a Rousseauian concept, or just like the, the popular sentiment of the average users. Mm -hmm. And there'll be this gap between what's actually happening on a technical level and what the actual priorities of the, of the technology are and what the will of its stakeholders are. And so I think that's a problem, right? Yeah. And this kind of goes to your third question, which is how do we make this organization more accountable or you know, how do we improve culpability? Let's go back for one second, though. We like to think of the core developers as people who are good stewards right. of this technology, like Gavin. <laughs> Gavin's also been 
uh, accused of not only meeting with the CIA, but being employed or coerced <laughs> by the CIA. I've read all of these things, right? No proof for that. But, uh, you know, obviously some people are mad that he met with certain people, are mad that the Bitcoin Foundation is basically in bed with regulators. There's all of this going on. But are there some conflicts, some blatant or obvious conflicts of interest that you can see? I had read that a few of the core developers were actually employed by some larger Bitcoin companies, such as BitPay. Is it true one of the core developers is currently employed by BitPay? Is that still the case? I've heard that rumor as well. Um, but, you know, I haven't really seen definitive evidence. I mean, from my perspective, it looks just like a rumor. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there are some, you know, uncomfortable or unnatural relationships because that's inevitable. If you don't have a formal political structure, you're going to have this sort of informal political apparatus that co-ops authority. And this is going to be very opaque. You're not going to be able to really recognize or access the conversation, but they make decisions nonetheless. So I think, you know, right now what happens is there's, there's a handful of core developers that actually have the passcode so they can deploy updates to Bitcoin core, right? Like mm -hmm. this is the technocratic elite, the technical priesthood that's managing the technology. If you think about just code, you know, its ability to define what behavior is permissible and impermissible within this virtual realm, code effectively takes the form of law, right? Sure. Because they can regulate away certain behavior and then they can design it so that it encourages other forms of behavior. But unlike the laws that we're subjected to in the real world, you know, we can break them and then we just, you know, may or may not face punishment. In the virtual world, it literally defines the parameters of the universe. And so from that perspective, you know, they're not just building technology. They're more like legislators that are actually designing the social institution that Bitcoin is growing into. So they're kind of like this legislative branch. But mm -hmm. again, there's no accountability. As a community, normal Bitcoin owners don't have really any formal voice to influence the prioritization of features and you know, different kind of frameworks. Because with technology development, you're going to face trade-offs all the time, right? It's, mm -hmm. you know... We can make this feature faster, but, you know, it's going to be less scalable or whatever. Those are the kind of technical decisions which have moral and social implications. And right now, the core developers are just doing whatever they want. And again, you and I have no influence. I think the Bitcoin community assumes that these high priests, Gavin, for instance, I think the Bitcoin community assumes that they are good stewards of this technology such that when it comes to making sure that Bitcoin develops as something that is everything that the anarchist wants and everything that the libertarian, for instance, wants, uh, Gavin is right there at the helm, making sure that he's steering away from tyranny and toward freedom. And I'm not so sure that he is. The reason I'm not so sure that he is is because I can't prove it either way. It's not transparent. I don't know what's going on in Gavin's head. I don't know what's going on in his heart. I don't know if he's someone who could be influenced by other people. And when I refer to Gavin, I'm referring to sure. the developers generally, right. right? I don't know how to trust them, and I don't know if we in the Bitcoin community looking at the blockchain technology, I don't know if we want to be once again held captive by this concept of trust do we yep. want to have to trust gavin and then we find out later on oh gosh darn it 
We couldn't trust him because, you know, from the beginning of the Bitcoin Foundation, there are these ties to not the Gambini family, you know, not the uh, Lansky family, but ties to Mount Gox, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Carpelli's, you know, grandson of Al Capone, Mark Capelli's. <laughs> You know, that you can see him with a cigar in his mouth. Instead, he's got a latte, <laughs> right? But, you know, I'd still like to open up a can of whoop-ass on that point. <laughs> a friend of mine years ago, this guy, he's no longer alive here in Nashville. His name is Kirk Brown. He was homeless for years, but also a woodworker and a very talented, intelligent person, country boy from Kentucky. And uh, <laughs> I said that one time to him. I said, man, I'd like to open up a can of whoop-ass on that guy. And Kirk said to me, he said, Johnny Barrett, he said, you know, the worst thing about opening up a can of whoop ass and i said no what is that kirk he said getting the lid back on (laughs) anyway so go ahead man what do you think well well, look i think your your intuitions are spot on right and my reaction would be we shouldn't trust them there should be some formal process for vetting the individuals that are going to have the technical ownership and technical authority over the project and making sure that ultimately that authority is vested in the community at large. And if necessary, it can be revoked and it can be reassigned to someone else. Right. But as soon as you say the word authority, people are thinking, they're thinking, are you kidding me? Let's look at our federal government. Let's look at our local government. You know, look at the politics in Chicago as a perfect example. Now you've got Rahm Emanuel in there. You know, yeah. it goes from organized crime to just pure evil. You know, and so how do you trust an authority? People's experience these days is I can't trust an authority, but then you're calling for an authority. Of course, I'm playing the devil's advocate here. Oh, absolutely. No, this is great. So so the first thing, I think you have to be pragmatic about the way you're thinking about this. And I think recent events have demonstrated that whatever situation is currently existing within the Bitcoin leadership, it's not long-term tenable. It's not long-term scalable or reliable mm-hmm. um, for two reasons. You know, one, the formation of these inevitable backroom, informal, uh, you know, p- power structures is... Is inevitable. It's it's going to happen whether you like it or not. Because at some point, someone's got to be sitting in the middle, routing the decision and routing the conversation. And there is a handful of people at the end of the day that, you know, again has the actual technical control to deploy updates and to change the live version of Bitcoin. There's a quotation from Robert Nozick's Anarchy: Seed and Utopia, which I think is really fantastic. And it's out of anarchy. Pressed by spontaneous groupings, mutual protection associations, division of labor, market pressures, economies of scale, and rational self-interest, there arises something very much resembling a minimal state or a group of geographically distinct minimal states. So it's, hmm. you know, you, you never have the situation where no one has authority. It, it's going to end up being consolidated somehow, somewhere. That's number one. Number two, you know, as long as there's this leadership void in the community you're going to have more foundations and more organizations stepping forward trying to claim uh, that leadership authority, right? So mm-hmm. let's say the Bitcoin Foundation is dissolved within two months, which seems very possible. And let's say Olivier rallies the community. He rides all of the uh, the moral goodwill that he's generated, and he creates this trust, which he's been discussing on Reddit, he's been proposing. And the purpose of the trust would be to employ the core developers. Well, guess what? You know, Now we have another entity that the community at large doesn't have any authority over. So you're never going to be able to avoid the usurpation or the or the or the centralization of power. It's just it, it, we're seeing it happening in real time. So you can be really dogmatic and refuse any sort of formal authority, or you can claim control of the political destiny of this project. And you know, back to your earlier question about how can we trust the individuals that are running the technology? 
look, I mean, on one level, you can question their intentions. Um, I'm also inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt that these are honest, reliable people that have the best interest of Bitcoin at heart. Mm -hmm. But that's not a, a scalable or, you know, <laughs> right. long-term tenable assumption, right? Because at some point, someone's going to get into a position where that's just not the case, you know? So right. either it's not the case now or it won't be the case in the future. Uh, and then the second issue is just, you know, what is their competency when it comes to making these, again, these types of political decisions? They're, I'm sure, you know, when it comes to technology, these are some of the best people in the world with, with cryptography and distributed networking, etc. But do they understand the political dynamics and the social consequences of a lot of their features? I really don't think so. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was going through the Bitcoin forums and uh, I stumbled across a post. I, I forgot who posted it, but it was somebody... Uh, I want to say it was one of the core developers. It was definitely someone technical that was at the Bitcoin Foundation. Okay. And he was talking about coin tainting, where you know the uh, the core developers basically released this notice out to the whole community that certain coins that are associated with certain wallets are tainted, right? Like maybe they were illicitly acquired. Right. Um, so the idea is, is they would be able to devalue those Bitcoins because people wouldn't want to exchange for tainted coins. You know, this is literally a form of distributing justice, right? Because someone's going to make a decision that somebody did something bad and that somebody's worthy of being, you know, branded as, you know, having coins that are tainted. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to relegate that justice out, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I was reading the discussion, it was really, it was really technical. It was like, how do we do this? But nobody ever really stopped to say, wait a second, should we be doing this? Should we, right. <laughs> uh, and, and, and if so, um, what are the right, you know, institutional checks so that this isn't, this power is not being abused so right. that, you know, the core developers don't just have some grudge against someone and they just go and taint that person's coins. There has to be some sort of checks in the system. So, you know, you have to pick your poison at the end of the day. Either, you know, the technology is literally going to be stolen by this elite group, you know, among the core developers, these technocrats, right, that have asserted mm -hmm. their technical leadership. And a lot of these people are in that position just simply because they're early adopters, right, because they stumble across this project sooner than most others, and they've built up, you know, moral credibility in the community, right? So you have the, the technocrats on one level that are making the, the technology and influencing the actual code of this world and laws of this community. Mm -hmm. And then you have, you know, the mining coalition, and we know that that's been forming into pools. And so there's now this oligopolistic, this oligarchic structure within the mining community. And because the miners, at least a majority of the computational power in the mining network, has to accept any updates to the Bitcoin protocol in order for it to actually go into effect, they're effectively like the executives, right? They're the ones that are empowered to implement the new law that's coming out of the legislative branch. And they do it through majoritarian consensus. Um, but we've also seen informal power networks happening here, right? Like there's this one case where a few years ago, the core developers released a new update. And for whatever reason, a majority of the miners did not actually start working on this updated version. Mm -hmm. So the older outdated version of the blockchain grew faster. And we know that, you know, Satoshi's laws of, of Bitcoin stipulate that the longest blockchain is definitively the accurate one. Right. So that, that should have been it, right? Like, you know, if, if we were to be strict constitutionalists about this and interpret the laws, you know, word for word, then the update just doesn't exist, right? But, you know, the core developers were able to negotiate with, you know, I guess the leader of one of the largest mining pools who switched over to the updated version, which in turn tilted the balance of computational power. And so, I mean, this is literally <laughs> a unilateral decision here to break the rules in terms of which blockchain is authoritative. 
And again, you know, it, on a small scale, maybe it works, right? Because these guys know each other. Maybe they trust each other. They're all collectively interested in making Bitcoin successful in the long run because mm -hmm. they're all invested in the currency. But that economic calculus can change over time. Sure. And again, you know, we just can't trust long term that men will be angels, right? Absolutely. Um, so if you wanted to kind of like a religious read of the whole thing, right? And like Satoshi being the, the creator, the god of this universe, you know, and then he passes the commandments down to Moses or to Gavin. <laughs> um, like that might work for the first generation, but it's not going to work for the second, third or fourth, etc. And, you know, ultimately Bitcoin's going to face challenges. It's going to face internal challenges, the decision making with technical developers, the consolidation of power in the mining pools. By the way, you know, you and I, just people that own Bitcoins, right? We're, we're the plebeians here, you know? <laughs> yeah. we're, the, we're the people without any say, right? So <laughs> it's at least in the United States, we can vote for our president, don't make donations, you know, you know volunteer in campaigns, et cetera, try to influence our chief executive, you know, uh, commander in chief, who in turn will appoint, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So at least we have some indirect political voice as far as how our monetary policy is ultimately managed even though it's very indirect. Very indirect. And, <laughs> and, 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 and when you divide it out among people, it's probably inconsequential. But like that's still more of a voice than we have in the Bitcoin community. I really do think the Bitcoin community is, for the most part, full of people who have really good intentions and who have really good hearts. You know, we see the philanthropy, we see the nonprofits, we see the charities. And, you know, from the word go, the Bitcoin community has been behind so many different good causes. So that I like to think that maybe, just maybe, so far, we've been treated really well by the developers, that they have been good stewards, that they have been leading us in the right direction, that they have not been leading us to the slaughter unbeknownst to us. But you never know. And, you know, I think that there obviously has been immense pressure on people like Gavin. In a sense, I feel sorry for Gavin because I think he's an atheist. And if you're an atheist and I don't get into religion on my show, I have my own personal beliefs that uh, do not really parallel anybody else's, my beliefs in uh, higher powers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I feel sorry for Gavin that he doesn't believe in God because what do you do, you know, when you're the guy in the trenches and the shells are... <laughs> coming around you, you know, they say there are no atheists in the trenches, right? Something like that. You know, what does Gavin do? Who do you call out to? You're just like, oh, God, this is killing me. Who do you cry out to? If you can't cry out to God, who do you cry? I always wonder, who do you cry out to in your worst time? You know, when you just feel like all is lost and there's no hope at all, and you don't know where to turn, you know, I mean, what is it? You know, maybe you believe in Mickey Mouse. Yeah, Mickey! <laughs> well, you, you know that saying, it's it's lonely at the top. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. It's not easy being a leader. You've got to reconcile a plurality of different viewpoints and interests and try to, you know, balance the needs and the desires of various different stakeholders. And you have to coordinate that uh, into some sort of coherent policy and, you know, a coherent framework for decision making. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, that's what government is. That, that, that's what politics is, you know? Yeah. So you're saying we have to have government. And obviously, you know, if you look at any place, any municipality like Nashville, if we didn't have a government, we would still have to have a government. Let's say we disbanded all the governmental agencies here in Nashville. Well, we're still going to have to scramble to get a group of people together who agree to coordinate the trash pickup and who agree to coordinate the infrastructure of the sewer system and agree to work on the infrastructure of the public school 
schools and maintaining the libraries. I mean, you know, so you have to have government. There's no question about that. But what we don't want is we don't want the kind of government we've seen before. And what I think what you're saying, and I'm not trying to put words into your mouth, is that the way things are going right now with the Bitcoin Foundation, the way things have gone, we essentially have a form of government. What do you call this form of government? You've got to read John Locke, Second Treatise of, of Civil Government, for two reasons. You know, one, if, if you're not really familiar with Lockean philosophy, it's probably the single largest source of inspiration for the American constitutional project and, you know, the, the, the revolutionary spirit in our own founders in the United States. So it has a lot of historical significance to our own country, but also, you know, it has a, a tremendous amount of, I mean, it is the foundation of libertarian thought. So if you're crypto anarchists and you assert this claim to property rights and, you know, we have a right to build these technologies that are going to preserve our property and our privacy, well, that's great. But where did that property and privacy rights come from in the first place? You know, why do we have them? Mm -hmm. um, what is the nature of these rights? What are their limits? Where's their origin? That conversation really started with John Locke. And, you know, he's the one who proposed the labor theory of that value, which is essentially, there's all these natural resources out there that are held in common. But at some point, I have to mix my own labor, which is literally, you know, part of my life, right, because I can spend my time doing whatever I want to make these resources more productive. And the process of mixing my labor with the natural resources is what entitles me to a property claim over it. So like, that's the foundation in, in Lockean's assessment of property rights, which is really, I mean, that's what this project is all about, right? You know, the Bitcoin project is about trying to secure your currency in a way that's resilient against external manipulation and intervention. Right. Um, so let me take a step back. So you've got the state of nature theory, uh, which basically the state of nature theorists, you know, they ask, why do we have government? And they answer that by engaging in this thought experiment where they basically try to hypothesize about what life was like in a pre-political pre-civilization state, literally a state of nature, a state of anarchy, where there is no formal governance. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they have assumptions on human nature, and so they have a model for how people behaved in that environment. And then from there, they think about what would happen, and then they draw conclusions, and they justify the role of government. And Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, they all go in totally different directions. But, you know, the rules of the game, I think, are different in the virtual realm. Because, you know, for one, there's sort of contingencies or background conditions that we assume are met, right? So mm -hmm. if you're trading Bitcoins, you have access to electricity and the internet. You're probably not starving. You're probably not immediately fearful for your bodily security, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's the kind of situation that really motivates all of, say, the Hobbesian world, right? And so, you know, Hobbes compares the state of nature to the state of war, which life is nasty, brutish, and short because people are perpetually fearful that at any given moment they can be killed, right? And even though you may not be physically superior to me, you can poison me, you can stab me in my sleep, etc. So everyone's in the state of equality to the extent that anybody can kill anybody at any time. And mm -hmm. so that creates just a tremendous amount of anxiety and stability. And ultimately, we accept some sort of government, the sovereign of the Leviathan is how he describes it, that doesn't have to be accountable because However awful the sovereign is, it's always better than what the state of nature slash state of war would be. So that, that's Hobbes, right? Right. Hobbes was an absolutist. He said the sovereign has absolute power. Right. <laughs> yeah. But that, that clearly does not apply to the Bitcoin world because, no. you know, we don't have that kind of fear. And there's voluntary entry. You know, and at some level, participating in Bitcoin is very much a non-coercive process, right? Because yes. no one's forcing you to buy coins. And at any given point, you can sell your coins and leave or go to one of the 500 altcoins that are out there. Um, so there's that, right? And then there's, then there's the programmability that, you know, you can iterate 
and you can quickly change literally the design parameters of that world. Uh, and you can always fork and clone it. So, you know, if you don't like what's happening in the Bitcoin space, you can branch off and create an altcoin or an you know, alternative version, which that's a really interesting point, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, you're looking at all these different altcoins and they're all trying to, I mean, some of them have really crazy approaches, but I think probably the more mainstream altcoins are basically trying to address a design flaw within the Bitcoin protocol. So some are maybe trying to process transactions faster, or they do a better job of preserving anonymity, mm-hmm. or they can do more simultaneous transactions. But Bitcoin has such compelling network effects already. You know, It, it has a, such a strong first mover advantage oh, yeah. that I, I really don't think any of those marginal benefits of the altcoins are compelling enough to substantially shift traffic away from Bitcoin towards this alternative cryptocurrency. But I do think that building out you know, a formal governance structure with the community has product say and the leadership is accountable, you know, it's transparent, it's representative, uh, and there's a stable and reliable protocol for making decisions, that to me could be a really compelling competitive advantage. And I think if the Bitcoin community continues to struggle, I mean, you know, something that just really boggles my mind is they're having these debates on these forums about how to reliably pay the core developers. And I understand, you know, the core developers don't want to be campaigning for funds and trying to crowdsource their life every month. That's just not practical for them. And we would presumably we want the best technical talent working on this, right? So we want to be able to attract the best people to the project. I mean, what, like, you know, the the market cap of Bitcoin is 3.5 billion. I mean, over hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital have been raised for Bitcoin and blockchain startups. And yet the community can't figure out how to get a million dollars a year to pay, you know, half a dozen core developers a full-time salary. Yeah. There's money in the ecosystem. That's pretty sad, really, when you think about it. And then when you think about where the money went that did actually come yeah. in and they're insolvent. I mean, where did that money go? Is anybody going to be discussing that at any point? Is anybody tracking the Bitcoins? I mean, what's going on with that? Have you heard any information about that? No. I mean, and again, you know, I think the fact that we can't organize around a reliable structure for paying the core developers, the fact that there isn't a reliable protocol for initiating audits and internal reviews, these are the kind of benefits that we get from structured, you know, political association. And it doesn't have to mean like a communist state, right? Like you can have a minimalist state with a very narrowly defined vision. Oh, yeah. uh, but presumably, you know, you would want to build out mechanisms for doing that kind of stuff. And and then also, you know, I mean, earlier you said that you, you felt that uh, the core developers have been doing a great job of managing the technology. I think for the most part they have, but, you know, we could hold them to a higher standard. We could we could ask them to do an even better job. And I think the community deserves yeah. that, right? You know, technical product road mapping and technical development could be more user-driven, right? Like the community should be setting the priorities and should be making these big macro decisions, directional decisions about the technology. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that Andreas and other people have distanced themselves from the foundation based on the lack of transparency. I mean, that's the biggest thing. It's so funny in a way. It's so ironic in a way. You see the Bitcoin community. They're saying, we hate government. We hate the NSA. We hate this shit. We're so tired of the lies. We're so tired of the lobbying, of the bribing, of the lack of transparency, of our lack of power to do anything about it, to change anything at all. And then here comes this foundation, Mm -hmm. and all of these libertarians and all these crypto anarchists are running over over there okay running over there is one thing okay people still have lemming dna in them right but you know so an ape dna in them so it completely makes sense that they would run over there but once they find out that they're insolvent and that they're really a bunch of crooks or that they have ties to carpelli's and ties to mount gox and all these other things once they find that out 
and they're not up in arms, I don't know, man. It makes me think that there are as many dum-dums percentage-wise in the Bitcoin world as there are dum-dums sitting at home watching that goofy guy spin that wheel on Wheel of Fortune and and clapping and thinking that it's the greatest thing in the world. I mean, do we have just a bunch of real lemming-like dum-dums in the Bitcoin community? If you're listening out there, listeners, are you yourself a lemming-like follower who loves the Bitcoin Foundation still, and you're still a lifelong member, even though they're not transparent, and even though they've screwed everybody, and even though they're continuing to screw everybody by not being transparent. I mean, if you're listening, what side are you on? Are you on the side of transparency and truth and justice, or are you happy just to hand your money, your donations, over to what basically, to me, is starting to look like a criminal organization? You know, again, any political question at the end of the day can be distilled to reflections on human nature, right? And you're suggesting that people have a tendency to conform in terms of their thinking, which, I mean, I don't, I don't think is an unreasonable claim. But, you know, that's, again, you know, sort of like this societal design flaw that the proper political structures could design around or at least mitigate the effects of it. Yeah. Um, you know, again, with, with the Bitcoin Foundation, I mean, something that, you know, it's just, it's just so funny. There's just so much irony here. And I think there's not a lot of... Uh, philosophical consistency within the community because you have you know this technology which is presumably distributed and decentralized but you know for a while it was publicly managed by this foundation that was you know in a intransparent unaccountable non-representative right i mean i I characterize the bitcoin foundation as this sort of hobbesian sovereign that literally sprung forth from the state of nature and asserted (laughs) authority of course they they didn't have a monopoly on power and force but nonetheless you know when the, the Senate Finance Committee wants to know, learn more about Bitcoin. They're calling up Patrick Merck, who's now playing the role of a political figurehead speaking on behalf of Bitcoin. <laughs> and even though he'll say the foundation is not Bitcoin, the public can't tell the difference at that point. Also in this episode of Bitcoins and Gravy, we get to hear a cover of Ode to Satoshi, as performed by Andy Gonzalez, my new friend from the Texas Bitcoin Conference. Andy does a great job of covering this timeless classic, and I should also mention that Andy will soon be publishing his own podcast with his good friends Alex Eaton and Ed Clements. They will be calling their podcast Deep in the Heart of Bitcoin. The miners cry, kaipiai. Deep in the heart of Bitcoin. Well, more power to you fellers. I can't wait to hear the podcast. It's great to know that podcasting is growing in popularity here at the dawn of the age of cryptocurrencies. Nice work, Andy, Ed, and Alex. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be He gave us all a protocol this world had never seen Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're gonna rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name, till everybody knows. Dang it, Johnny, you make this sound easy. Hit it. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. 
down the road it will be told about the death of old Mount Gox About traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down to Tennessee See they don't care to be a millionaires, they just wanted to be free Oh Bitcoin, as y'all going into the old blockchain Oh Bitcoin, I know you're gonna rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Ghettos of Calcutta to the halls of Parliament, while the bankers count our money out for every government. Oh, Bitcoin flies on through the skies of virtuality, a promise to deliver us from major tyranny. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're gone into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're gonna rain, gonna rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, everybody knows. Keep my composure. Everybody knows your name. Sing it. Oh Lord, pass me more. Oh Lord, for I have to go. Before I have to go. Thank you, old bedroom. You keep yourself organized now, you hear? I think for me, like the first big uh, red flag that I saw with the foundation was, you know, I was a while ago, I was going through their, uh, their bylaws and they listed the founding members and the last founding member that listed is Satoshi Nakamoto. And I'm like, this is interesting. So I look at the date that the foundation was started and the bylaws uh, say they were incorporated, I believe on June 1st, 2012, I might be wrong there, but mm-hmm. you know, and then I compared that to uh, Satoshi's correspondence, and his last public correspondence was a year and a half prior to the formation of Bitcoin Foundation. Right. <laughs> so either he was having private correspondence with the rest of the founding team, and they just never bothered to release that or share it, which seems very unlike Satoshi, or they just asserted that he was a founder to claim, again, moral authority for their project, and they basically dared Satoshi to come out and, and deny that, and he hasn't. Right. Uh, the other thing, too, is you know when you look at the Genesis blocks, they were all going to Satoshi's wallet. You know, he has, I, I think last time I read, like half a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, which, I mean, that's a lot, right? You know, you'd think that if he were really behind some sort of institution to help protect and promote his currency, which is, you know, the stated mission of the foundation, you'd think that he wouldn't have a problem peeling off like 5% of that, you know, to endow them with a really, really juicy financial position. But as far as we know, I mean, those, his wallets have never 
transacted or exchanged currency. For one thing, Satoshi may not be alive anymore. We don't know. Yeah, true. And Satoshi may be alive and well, and Satoshi may have purposely thrown away the private keys. We don't know that either. Yep. So we don't know that there is actually an entity that actually has Bitcoins. But your point is well taken. Well, you know, when it comes down to it, we've got to do something. What do you think about Cody Wilson's suggestions on the one hand? And then what do you think about the cry for decentralizing the foundation on the other hand and if we could decentralize the foundation ian what do you think should happen next yeah absolutely i i would like to see to borrow the language of john locke um, a sort of commonwealth forming you know this sort of constitutional convention moment where in one defined space you know the majority ideally all of the public bitcoin leaders the core developers many of the miners you know people like andreas etc um Come and then and then anybody who wants to participate, who's just a regular Bitcoin owner or you know interested member, mm-hmm. um, come together onto a forum and really have structured debate. And someone is going to have to just step forward and assert some leadership here and say, okay, like we're going to discuss these set of issues, and at some point we're going to make a decision and we're going to move on, right? But you know, ultimately the, the the community has to decide for itself. I believe what kind of structure it wants to have, you know, and there's still so much disagreement fundamentally on whether or not they should even accept something formal to begin with, but they have to work past that. And then the question is, you know, what, what are the objectives of this sort of, you know, decision-making apparatus? Mm -hmm. What are its responsibilities? You know, presumably I would imagine most people would be in favor of a pretty minimalist, uh, political structure. Yes. And how are we going to go about building it? Right. And then, and then the big question is how do we assert actual like foundational moral authority because you're not going to get a hundred percent of all the bitcoin users in the world to like vote in favor of whatever it is like at some point right like the power has to be co-opted again right and that's just that's just inevitable so you know with the foundation of the united states we had you know delegates from all the different states that they convened at a summit and then they formed the constitution on some level it's going to have to be a representative process as opposed to a democratic process but i think as long as everybody can share their opinions and we can have well-informed debate, and that debate moves along at a reasonable pace, and we come to, to a, a consensus, and again, like, no one's going to get everything they want, right? Like, the art of, of politics is, is compromise. Right. But if, for the most part, people are reasonably satisfied, um, that's really, really great. And then I think we adopt that structure, and then, and then we go from there, right? And so I think we can definitely take a design approach that's similar to just product management in general, you know, launch early, iterate quickly. You know, we don't have to, you know, maybe maybe the first objective is just we want some sort of mechanism for reliably paying the core developers. And here are some questions. How are we going to fund it? You know, how is it going to uh, reflect the general will of the community in terms of feature prioritization and, and product direction? Mm-hmm. Um, what are our checks against it? Can it be dissolved or can we remove people that have technical authority uh, and, and, you know, passcodes, et cetera. Like those are the, like maybe, maybe that's where you start, right? Um, and yeah. then you, you get that out the door. Um, and then, you know, you have some mechanism for ongoing reviewal. And, you know, maybe in the future it's like, okay, well, um, it turns out that we do need, and I'm not saying this is the case, I'm just sort of speculating here. Sure. It's possible that at some point we say, okay, we actually do need some sort of formal figurehead, if you will, who will speak on behalf of the community when, you know, question of external regulation, when, you know, one of, you know, the hundreds of national governments around the world has an issue with this, you know, how are we going to elect a person to do that, right? Um, we have to ask and we have to, we have to analyze politically, 
where does the power actually, where is it actually held here, you know? How can we actually compel the core developers to be accountable to this, this structure, you know? And then ultimately, how do we get the miners to adopt whatever is going on? So I would imagine there would be some sort of entity that would source, you know, all of the ideas and the interests and the concerns of the community to kind of really understand the general will of the Bitcoin Commonwealth. I think that should be an entity of the highest moral character. And I think, I actually think that, uh, I think that they should elect me as the sovereign, the, the Bitcoin <laughs> sovereign. I mean, I actually wouldn't mind if anybody wants to throw it out there that, <clears throat> that we have a referendum vote and I'm voted in as the emperor of the Bitcoin world. That wouldn't offend me in any way at all, because I have the strong moral fiber and character to keep this ship pointed in the right direction. <laughs> I would say if you were to be willing to pull a George Washington of sorts and, and from the beginning set a term limit for yourself, um, that's something that I think the community would find compelling, and I would be inclined to support that. Because then we know we can trust that you don't have long-term aspirations to be running this thing for 30 years or whatever. Right. Um, you just want to see it through this critical period of, of governance formation for the next right. you know, couple of years. couple of years. You know what I always wonder, Ian, why, why are there no governments that are run strictly by referendum? That may be a very naive question, but you know, if you have anybody who's interested in weighing in on an issue, they weigh in on the issue and then we tally those and it's by referendum vote it's not by representation i'm talking about a true democracy where the majority would rule even if it was just 51 percent right or just right. over 50 percent but why is that so infrequently employed i mean you do see that with propositions locally right vote on proposition whatever well those are actual votes that are tallied now you know if they're using the debold machines you know they get to take these little computers and files someone takes them in their car and they take them to stop number one before they go to stop number two and then stop number three what's happening at one two and three god only knows but you know assuming that we could have an actual paper trail and actually have some kind of voting mechanism or machines that would accurately tally the vote and that it was transparent and that we could all see it, you know, and that it was basically as transparent as the blockchain, you know, yep. isn't that a possibility? Can't we actually all vote? All of us people who want to weigh in and vote, can't we vote? I mean, why couldn't all of the people who wanted to vote about the new members of the Bitcoin Foundation, why couldn't that be everybody? Why couldn't we have set that yeah. up to be everybody right. in the Bitcoin world? Wasn't that limited to Bitcoin Foundation members? I mean, is that not ironic or am I missing something? Oh, it's completely ironic. And I think to answer your final question first, why don't we have that to begin with? You know, the, the, con the political condition in which Bitcoin was birthed and introduced to the world was basically, you know, monarchist. You know, Satoshi had all the moral authority. He's the one that had the passcodes. And, you know, I mean, he had well-reasoned and, and well-articulated points, and he would make concessions to people, and he would change his mind, and he would give credit to others when they built stuff. So, you know, by all means, I think he was a pretty effective leader for being this avatar behind a, a computer somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was birth into the state of, of monarchy and everybody coalesced around the king and then he disappears, right? <laughs> so he, he abandoned, the, he, he did it without putting in place a, a tenable and a reliable political structure. And so now the community has to build it for itself yeah. because if it doesn't build it for itself, again, you're just going to be locked out of the discussion. 
you know, some elites that have asserted themselves early on are going to continue to control the direction of this thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, again, like it's just more and more foundations are going to come up and try to claim that they're, that they're the ones speaking on behalf of Bitcoin. There's part of me that can't help but think, and I know I'm not alone, can't help but think that Satoshi is this wise old man who knows so much and who is such a master at the game of chess that he could see into the future. He could see 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, on up to 2040, he could see what was going to happen. He could see that around this time in spring of 2015, the price would be low. And what that would do is that would take the regulatory heat off and it would take the interest from investors off and it would allow startups to get their core work going and it would allow the other competition, bit shares to come in and Ethereum to come in and finish their projects. In other words, it would allow people time to do the important work of Bitcoin. And then he knows that once that important work is done and the foundation is laid and we have this core protocol or these core protocols, then the rise of Bitcoin all the way to the moon. And (laughs) I like to think that there's some wise, but you know, I think the reason that I like to think that is because I know that I personally don't have any control over it. And the idea that there is something, someone who knows more than me, who has some power, who can make things turn out good for all of us, that concept is so appealing from a political, religious, social, psychological perspective. I want that so badly to know that there's someone, you know, there in the back room, the man behind the curtains, you know, some core devs that are working on things that are just going to blow the lid off this whole government ripping us off and Wall Street organized crime. You know, I just love to think that there's some powerful force that's going to lift us up and save us here in the 11th hour before World War Three starts. Right before World War Three starts, we'll get saved. Well, you know, um, on, on the topic of Satoshi, and I, I do want to circle back to your earlier question about just democracy and referendum voting, etc. As far as Satoshi goes, I mean, I agree. He was obviously a very intelligent person. He understood the technology. I mean, you know, he's, I don't think anyone doubts that he's a genius. And he also had like really principled social views. He recognized this sort of superstructure of the global financial system that, you know, had this sort of like arbitrary authority, right? And, you know, do we want to live in a situation where uh, a handful of central and private banks literally control the financial fate of the world? And his answer was no, and I'm going to do something about it by building an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think on some level, you know, his story has been a little bit mytho- mythologized. There's sure. sort of this quasi-religious foundation myth, and that's part of the appeal of this whole thing, that sort of mystery. Uh, yeah. um, but, you know, to your latter point about wanting to kind of believe in a person like Satoshi, yeah, I think that speaks to like a really valid and real psychological drive. But we have to be aware of the fact that wishing something into existence does not mean it will come. You know, at the end of the day, just as Satoshi took control or tried to take control of his destiny by building Bitcoin, the community that is now engaged in his project needs to take control of this technology by building out some sort of political structure that's actually reliable enough. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go back to your question about referendums and direct democracy. And this is one of those questions, one of those lines that is very short relatively, but you're opening up, you know, this huge tradition of intellectual thought and so many different discussions and viewpoints. Um, Just a few high level thoughts to be concise about it, just give you some food for thought on that. Okay. Um, So first, you know, I'd like to uh, appeal to David Hume, one of the great Enlightenment philosophers. And, you know, he writes that all government, dictatorships, democracies, doesn't matter. They're all based on the consent of the governed. 
Because at any point, you know, people can just wake up one morning and say, you know what, we're not going to listen to the king now. now. We're going to revolt. And so there's either explicit consent in more representative and democratic uh, systems, or there's implicit consent when people are just tolerating the situation. But at the end of the day, the power really is best in the people, and the government knows that. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply to Bitcoin, right? Because the power in the Bitcoin community is among the mining coalitions, and, and the entrance costs are really high there for people like you and, me, and I. And then also among the core developers, and the entrance costs are even higher there because we're not going to study cryptography for 10 years or whatever. But then on the question of representativeness, you know, that really kind of strikes also a really interesting debate on what is the role of representation. Um, you can take sort of a Hannah Arendtian view, which is political representation is a form of labor specialization. And, you know, in an economy, you're not doing all of the functions that you need to survive. You specialize and you sell whatever your work is. Mm -hmm. um, and then you buy the goods that are specialized by other people. And similarly, we have a specialized class that's handling politics, right? You can take sort of an Edmund Burke analysis where he really believes that the representatives are this higher class that's more noble and more refined and more capable of governance, and therefore we need to trust <laughs> the elites, right? You can take um, a Federalist reading, you know, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, and they believe that representatives need to temper the, the, the popular passions of the masses and to inform and educate and guide their thinking, you know? Um, and so, you know, the Bitcoin community gets to have a really, er, they have the, the possibility of engaging in a really exciting conversation about what they want their form of representation to be. Because I don't think anybody really wants direct democratic decision on all decisions, right? Like, that's just not going to be efficient. I think people recognize that. Um, but, you know, if we have this sort of entity that's sourcing um, the, uh, you know, the, the opinions uh, and the thoughts of the community, and that entity employs the core developers, so they, they, they speak to the core developers, they learn about the technical constraints and technical considerations that we may not be aware of that would definitely influence our judgment. Mm -hmm. And that representative body in turn reflects that back to the community so that we can become more educated in our thought process. And on some level, you, you can't eliminate trust. Like on some level, you have to trust that they're, they're not trying to manipulate us into forming bad opinions or whatever. The problem is that people can be bribed, the people can be lobbied, they can have a nice sit-down lunch in a little bistro and the envelope is passed under the table or passed under the napkin or whatever. You know, it's funny, I think a lot of the political theorists of the past and philosophers of the past that spoke about politics, I think that if we could go back in time and show them a film of the future and say, by the way, in the year 2015, everybody will have at least one of these boxes called a television. And that will be the way that the state will influence them. I think that a lot of their political theories, I think they'd chuck them out the window because so much of what we forget is that public opinion is now yeah. manufactured. The manufacturing of consent is by way of getting people to believe in certain things. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that you get them to believe in what you want them to believe in. You just have to get them to believe, let's say, that their team, their sports team, is the best thing out there. And so distract them away from the fact that you're invading a sovereign nation, let's say. <laughs> you know, they, So there's so many different ways to manipulate people using the oh, television yeah. and using the computer and using radio that so many of the political theories that didn't take these technological advances into account in their theorizing um they're really kind of behind because these are major 
events in world history such that the idea that you have people that are basically still free if they will get up and revolt if they will en mass move in this direction or move in that direction well the sad thing is that they are being moved en masse by the television by what they hear they're told what to buy and they refer to themselves as consumers and they have a whole way of thinking about the world and about reality that has very little to do with their day-to-day lives but they're still stuck in this fantasy television i've got to do this sort of world uh, to the detriment of their own families and their own children because they're letting the whole thing slip away while they're busy watching television and being conditioned and being misinformed. It's a very sad situation we find ourselves in. Yeah, well, you know, um, there's an author you might be interested in. Her name is Nadia Urbanati, and she's a, uh, a political theorist at Columbia University, and she published a book relatively recently called Democracy Disfigured. And she basically articulates uh, you know, the, the same point you're trying to make, which is, in, in her estimation, there's sort of these two... Um, I don't remember the exact term she used, but there's these two sort of verticals that influence our political structure. So one is the actual, on a structural level, how the government is designed. Um, and the other one is sort of the apolitical realm of opinion formation uh, and, and sort of how people engage that government. And in her mm-hmm. estimation, you know, we look at just d- dramatically dysfunctional and non-representative and, and frankly corrupt uh, political system that we live in, and it, it doesn't align with what we want to believe democracy is, right? So democracy has become disfigured, and it's not because structurally it's broken down, it's because the mechanisms for forming public I- opinion and, and public I- ideation have become distorted, hmm. um, and therefore our population is polarized, and we're electing extremes on both sides, um, and, you know, and, and just nothing gets done. Um, I would like to make one more point, though, because, you know, once again, to the question of democracy, why not more de- direct democracy? And I think on, on one level, um, you know, democracy has been historically constrained by just geography, right? You know, the Athenian landed aristocracy could come together uh, and have debates and vote because they were all within the same proximity of each other. And when the United States was founded, it really was this bold political experiment. People didn't know if republicanism uh, could happen throughout such a large geography, right? Like if it would just be possible for such a disparate and diverse group of people to be able to make decisions as one. And, you know, at times it wasn't, uh, it, it got messy, right? Like we had the Civil War, you know, we've had yeah. plenty of disagreements throughout the history of our country. Um, but now, you know, the, the world is so different, right? And it's because of this superstructure that's completely changed the way we communicate and share information. It's the internet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I'm I'm interested uh, as a theorist. You know, are we actually able to now seriously enter this sort of new realm of governance, opening up sort of a new dimension of political structure where we can have a more democratic and inclusive experience because we're no longer bound to the limits of our geography. Um, so there's this one author whom I, I really love. His name is Václav Havel, and he's um, Czechoslovakian. He was a, a playwright, a political dissident. He ended up becoming the president of of uh, Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic mm. after uh, eight, 1989 when it was uh, liberalized. Amazing individual. I and mean, he's, he's this kind of person who's not just this great theorist, but he's also a doer, right? He, mm. he, he takes his ideas into practice. And he has this, this book called The Power and the Powerless. Um, and towards the end of it, he talks about the parallel polis and post-democracy. And so, you know, he's living, he's grown up under totalitarianism, uh, you know, specifically a, a communist regime. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he identifies these sort of 
the parallel polis is this sort of external political structure that emerges outside of the responsibility or domain of formal governance. But it's legitimate to the extent that people engage it on their own terms and they have a form where they can authentically uh, represent and express themselves. And so he'll point to things like you know, student movements and like, uh, you know, music festivals and trade unions mm -hmm. as these sort of external structures that people can organize themselves outside of the direct domain of democracy. Um, and so, you know, really when I think about Bitcoin, Bitcoin to me seems to be a sort of parallel polis, right? Like yeah. nobody asked the government for permission to build this thing, but it was built. And now in, in, in Hobble's estimation, the parallel polis exerts influence on uh, the actual political structure, so it can it can you know incentivize and, and create dialogue that pushes it towards reform. Although he does uh, encourage people to be um, uh, wary of uh, halfway measures that are just mm -hmm. meant to appease the public but aren't like legitimate reforms, or it could completely usurp the the formal establishment and it it replaces it with this new structure. Um, and so you know we have you know Bitcoin I think is this parallel polis, and so it opens up this broader question which he raises, which is can we perhaps have a post democratic system? Um, excuse me one second. Sure. Yeah. My name is Ian Pasha. What are you doing? I'm I'm doing an interview. I got the key from Will uh, Adams. That is not permitted. He gave me the key. Yeah, he's not supposed to give the key to anyone. I'm doing an interview. I needed a sound room. Yes, you should come into the master's office and ask the room. So who gave it? Will gave it to you. And your name is Pancha. Ian Pancha, yeah. So as soon as you finish, please leave and I will do that. We'll Absolutely. Will. Absolutely. I'm just. Do you have the key? Yes. Give me the key, and I'll lock the door. Okay. I'll. I'll come back and lock the door. Okay. Oh man, there's the voice of authority once again. Yeah, man. you know, I mean, just I hate being condescended to, and I'm I definitely have authority issues, you know. So it's like, you know, I'm like I'm, I'm 25, like I'm not going to destroy this room. I'm not like having sex in here. I'm I'm literally just having an interview. So leave me the fuck alone. Um, but but you did make it. You did make a copy of that key, didn't you? <laughs> no, but and I don't I don't need it. But I'm I mean, just kidding, man. Look, you know, I mean. Corrosion happens in many different forms, and it's not just institutions; it's relationships, right? But I wish I wish this whole that whole thing I could play that on the show. I won't. If you and, want to? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mind. I mean, if you uh, want, if I, you wanted me to play that on the show, I think it's actually hilarious. Even me <laughs> talking about playing it on the show. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it serves as an interesting illustration. It's, it's like a, a micro instance of a, a you know authoritative corrosion. And in my case, like, I consented to it. Like, I wasn't going right. like, to, arguing with her wasn't going to accomplish anything, you know? Exactly. Um, but, right, I mean, like, did I appreciate that? No. What I've told my friend recently is that, uh, you know, somebody can say something to you in a condescending way. Somebody can say something to you in a rude way, trying to tell you what to do or trying to tell you what not to do or just saying something rude to you. But the key is what you did. The key is to respond Right, they're the stimulus, and then you have a period of time after that stimulus to decide uh, microseconds, maybe, or 10 seconds while they're talking. You have the freedom in this period of time to choose how you respond, and you can choose to be noble and virtuous in your response and respectful, or you can choose to be um, <laughs> just as bad as they were. And right. if you choose the latter, then that's the old thing. That's another thing Kirk Brown used to say to me, Johnny Barrett, two wrongs don't make a right. You know? <laughs> and I say that to my friend every, every once in a while, you know, 
uh, somebody is texting on their phone and she wants me to pull the car up next to them so she can unroll the window and say, you son of a bitch, you're not supposed to be texting, you asshole. Right? And, of course, if she does that, then I tell her, um, that's two wrongs. I'll, I'll quote Kirk Brown, you know. <laughs> you know, two wrongs don't make a right, Johnny Barrett. So I think that your response to her was appropriate, and I think that that's important for people to know that, yeah, you, you're not going to get anywhere by having an inappropriate response or a condescending response back to them. Uh, being polite is the best way to go. And then, you know, down the road, if you can, you know, slip in the back door or send a note here or there and, you know, and get them fired, you know, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, one of the, you know, one of the greatest revenge is really, it's, it's, and I'm not into revenge, but if someone has really, really done something to harm you, of course, you know, you want to go hit them or do something physical. And we know that's not the answer. So one of the greatest things is just get their phone number. Right. Just get their phone number and just start posting flyers around town. Free, <laughs> free pit bull puppies. You know. <laughs> I like that. I might, I might, I might have to pull that one. Yeah, but you uh, got You've got to make it specific. You've got to say, you know, I work the graveyard shift, so please call after three a.m. <laughs> right. Know? So anyway, but well, uh, you, I think you handled that very well. Thank you. You know, you you got to pick and choose your battles. Uh, yeah. And I, I found that you know fucks that you can give. It's a finite resource. You can't give a fuck about everything. Otherwise, you're just always upset. <laughs> right. So you gotta you gotta be selective about it. So let me ask you: Yale University is there in New Haven, Connecticut. What's that like? Is it pretty nice? Yeah, I mean the university. I mean this time of year, the university is really nice because it's spring. The snow has melted and the weather's nice. I mean, you know, Yale is. Um, I, on some level, I kind of have mixed feelings because um, I've had amazing faculty, you know, and, and it's just some amazing classroom experiences. And the student body is just so. I mean, everybody is just so you know, interesting and passionate and talented. And so it's an environment where I very much feel challenged, but not intimidated by my peers, which I think is a good balance. Oh, yeah. At the same at the same time, I you know, there's there's a lot of like cultural standards to the school that I don't appreciate. Like I think there's just really strong conformist pressures. You know, I think the majority of the student body is it, it's very we self select to get into these kind of schools in the first place. And the student body is very much driven by a desire for status and achievement and also fear of failure. And mm. so, you know, they come in all excited to change the world, and then they leave working for Goldman Sachs. Yeah. And so at some point along the way, like, the conformist pressures just kind of catch up to people. And then, like, you know, there's 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 issues that I've, I've had with, like, the administration. Uh, but, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I feel that I really don't have much right to complain because as far as academic institutions go, it doesn't get much better than Yale. Yeah. Um, so it's just it's just been a blessing here, and I've, I've grown so much as a person, as a thinker, uh, and now, you know, I'm a month away from graduating, so I'm excited to, you know, <laughs> step out into the world. Oh, wow. A month away. Now, what are your plans after graduation? Well, I have a, I have a startup that I'm running. It's called Prepped, uh, P-R-E-P-D, and we've built first-to-market software for speech and debate teams. Um, so that's definitely going to consume a lot of my time. Uh, I plan on going to business school at some point in a few years. Um, I've been um, pre-admitted to Harvard and Stanford Business, so next week I get to go and check out the, uh, the admit weekends at those campuses, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, life, life's a journey. And uh, I just think if I follow my excitement, that will lead me to my passion. And um, hopefully I'll be able to do some cool stuff along the way. Oh, nice. No, so you said you've been offered deferred admissions mm -hmm. to Harvard Business School. Deferred admissions, does that mean they're letting you in free? No, it means that I'm, I'm guaranteed a spot in a future class. So I'm not actually able to matriculate this coming year and this fall. Uh -huh. Within two to four years from now, I can go to Harvard or Stanford. Um, and so I have to, I have to be out 
working for a couple years until I'm able to start business school. Okay, and that's a pretty big word, matriculate. That's not to be confused, listeners, with the word masticate. <laughs> Two completely different yes. <laughs> concepts there. Um, well, Ian, man, it has been great talking with you. We did cover a ton of ground. How's the Bitcoin community there in New Haven? Is there a Bitcoin community? Do you all have Bitcoin meetups there? No, no, actually. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, as far as student groups, I haven't seen a lot of activity. Um, I'll tell you this, though. You know, whenever I, you know, end up stumbling into a conversation about Bitcoin, because this time of year, we're always asking each other what our, you know, research is on. Right. Um, people are very, very, very intrigued, and they want to learn more about Bitcoin, you know. And I think typically those conversations are like, oh, cool, you're studying, you know, uh, democratic reform in uh, whatever country from 1982 to, you know, like, yeah. like when, when I talk about Bitcoin, people are really intrigued and I've been able to have some really awesome conversations. So I think the community wants to learn more, yeah. um, but it's just, you know, beyond just basic awareness of it, there still isn't a lot of understanding really what the technology represents and even broader, you know, the blockchain as this ownership protocol that, you know, could change the fabric of society on the same level that the internet once did or has been doing. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, to me, that's just really exciting. And a, a lot of people, when I, when I start to kind of share sort of like the, the larger ambitions of this whole technology boom, that people are like really impressed with what's going on. And it's exciting. I mean, you know, who knows, who knows how this is going to evolve, right? Like, you know, futurists can't really predict the future. They try, but they don't do a great job of it. You know, if you think about the change that's happened over the past hundred years, as far as the socio-technical order, you know, what the world was like at the beginning of the 20th century, as opposed to what it is like now at the beginning of the 21st century. It's, it's completely unrecognizable from what it was just 100 years ago. And so if we kind of project onto the future, I mean, no one really knows what's going to end up happening at the end of the day, but I think it's a safe bet to say that the world is going to be fundamentally different from our own. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I'm also inclined to think that the blockchain is going to play a big role in that. Uh, but it remains to be seen whether or not Bitcoin ultimately will have that, that long-term persistence to really drive that effort. It might, but I do think that if the community can come together and build out a, a representative, accountable, transparent, and efficient uh, decision-making protocol that becomes takes the form of sort of a minimalist state within the community, I think it'll have a better chance of succeeding in the long term because it'll do a better job of responding to, to problems and, and coordinating strategy. I agree. And, you know, listeners, I hope that somebody out there is going to find a way for us to have this forum that Ian is referring to, to have this public meeting, this town hall event uh, or series of events online, I assume it would be. But, you know, it could start as something that is a conference of sorts where, you know, it's just a meeting of minds and we basically organize our own legislature or whatever is required. Of course, on the other side, you have people saying, no, 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 no. It has to be completely decentralized. But, you know, we're human beings and we are social creatures and communication is so very important. And I think that, like you're talking about, at some point, we are going to have to have some kind of governance uh, in some way to protect the Bitcoin core development. I don't see any way around that, really. But so, hey, it's Friday. It's the weekend. What do people there at Yale University do on the weekends? Is there a, a Greek? Are there fraternities and sororities? Are these intellectual kids that will eventually be working for Goldman Sachs? Are they Friday night? Are they just going to party their asses off? Smoking lots of pot, dropping acid, taking <laughs> mushrooms, drinking lots of beer, kegers. Are you going to a kegger tonight? I am so immersed in my research and writing. I've got to submit my thesis next week. So I'm going to be working 
the whole weekend. Oh man! Uh, and I think I think a lot of people are in a similar boat right now. You're gonna miss but, the cake. You're gonna miss the cakers this weekend. <laughs> well, th- this weekend I think <laughs> is gonna be pretty low key because it's in the semester. Next weekend we have our spring fling, which is you Uh-oh. know a, a student concert, and and so that's gonna be an opportunity for most of the student body, which. Frankly, a lot of the students here don't have a lot of experience with alcohol and drugs, but uh, <laughs> next week will be the week for experimentation for a lot of people. Wow. You call it spring fling. I mean, that's right. it has such a nice, innocent sound to it, <laughs> you know, until they break out the LSD and the mushrooms and the kegs. They tap the kegs. It's like, spring fling, dudes! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, there's really there's really not a lot of hard drugs uh, on campus here. Um, I think it's really going to be limited to weed and, and alcohol from those people. Uh, <laughs> well, that's which, a good thing. Know, that's fine. So. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it sounds nice. I'm glad it's springtime there. I'm glad the snow has melted. I know that was a pretty heavy winter you guys had. Um, and uh, Ian, it's been great talking with you. Listeners, we have been talking with Ian Ponchev, who is a political scientist from Yale University and who is working on a research paper, I believe. What is the title of your paper? Tenant's title is Immaterial Worlds, the Virtual Politics of Bitcoin. And I do plan to uh, self-publish it once it's done towards the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully we can circle back and I can share with you, you know, the, the web destination. And I just want to invite the community to read it and question it and challenge it and present ideas. And I hope that, you know, perhaps that paper might be able to initiate some some conversation. Um, and then, you know, just one last point on um, as far as a, a destination for having a uh, discussion about, uh, you know, the, the political future of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really would like to encourage your, your, your audience to check out Democracy OS. Uh, dot com. It's uh, you know starting by this by this team from Argentina. They're currently in Y Combinator and they're they're building out a technology platform for crowdsourcing political conversation for voting. They're actually trying to rearchitect, as far as I understand, um, their voting mechanism so it can run on the blockchain, uh, on Bitcoin's blockchain specifically. So it's I think it's really really great technology. Um, I'd encourage your, your audience to check it out. I, I actually started the, um, the handle bitcoin.democracyos.com. Mm-hmm. So hopefully at some point in your future, that might be a destination for people to coalesce and have some conversation. Well, Ian, that is all very exciting stuff, man. And I definitely would like to revisit this with you when your paper is published. And I hope that you will keep in touch and definitely Absolutely. let us definitely let us know how we can get a hold of that paper because it sounds fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. And uh, good luck with everything at Yale. And I, I know you're going to do well. You are a very intelligent, articulate young man. And I really appreciate you taking time to be on the show. Well, thank you so much for the kind words and for having me on as a guest. I very much look forward to continuing the conversation with you and others in the near future. All right. Sounds great. Take care, Ian. Have a good one. You too, man. Bye. Bye. Quick announcement also, a good friend of mine, Elise Peterson, the owner of TLIT.com, is looking for an easy way to send money around the world using Bitcoin. So listeners, if you have information for Elise, please email her via TLIT.com at 
info at tlet.com or open up a discussion with all of us in the show notes at letstalkbitcoin.com. By the way, tlet, T-E-A-L-E-T.com is a fantastic source for fair trade teas directly from the growers. Elise and other good folks at tlet.com work tirelessly to help empower people working in the tea trade around the world. But the best thing about tlet.com is that they accept Bitcoin and Litecoin payments. Thanks for your question, Elise, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe it's tea time. I got a tip last week from one of our listeners named Derek. Derek has started a website called muchbitcoin.org. I checked it out and it looks like a great resource for finding out more about Bitcoin, where to buy Bitcoin, and pretty much everything having to do with, that's right, Bitcoin. That's muchbitcoin.org. And that brings us to the magic word today, which is much. M-U-C-H. Much, as in the sentence, I checked out muchbitcoin.org, and from what I can tell, it seems to be a great resource. And great news listeners, our transcription page is now live on the website thanks to the continuing hard work of one of our loyal listeners who is also a consultant to the show. These professional transcriptions are provided by one of our fans who can be found at diaryofafreelancetranscriptionist.com. And of course, you can find a link to this website in the weekly show notes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please take a minute to scan my QR code or copy my public key and send me 50 cents in Bitcoin. If you'll do this every once in a while, it will help me out more than you know. Folks, it's not easy being a podcast host, trust me, and putting in 10 hours each week to produce the show sometimes takes its toll. Remember that giving someone a small tip in Bitcoin is what makes Bitcoin folks stand out in this world. I know personally that whenever I give a tip to someone on Reddit or Let's Talk Bitcoin or one of the forums, I feel better about myself knowing that I've given back just a little to help that person continue creating great content. And signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, here with my dog, Maxwell. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Join us again next week for another episode of Bitcoins and Gravy. And until then, y'all be good to each other out there. And remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Do something, y'all. In, uh, in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx has this amazing line where he's describing capital and he describes it as this evil spirit that the sorcerer conjured up from the netherworld and has become too powerful for the sorcerer to control now. And then Martin Heidegger takes that line 
And um, he repurposes it and uses that to describe technology that, you know, it's kind of run away from us now. And it's sort of like taken on its own deterministic life. And I think Bitcoin kind of fits that analogy pretty well, or it can. And, and so, yeah, I really admire the technology, but I think it has to be guided properly. And hopefully the community can coalesce around something that makes sense while staying true to their values. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. A bit Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Down the road it will be told about the death of old Mount Gox About traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee See, they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, gonna rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go. Oh, thank you, East Nashville. Y'all be good to each other out there, you hear?